Well, welcome to Grace. We are glad you guys are here. Welcome to those of you online. Let's pray before we look at the word together. Let's pray. Father, you've told us in your word to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So we do. We unite our hearts in the name of Jesus and pray for peace. And Lord, we ask that you accomplish your highest purposes when so many people on all sides of this are being devastated. We ask, Lord, you to work out your highest purposes. And we pray, Lord, that you also show us in these days our role as a church and that we'd be able to really honor you, Jesus, and accomplish your purposes in the church and through the church with the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there was this guy. He was a scientist from Harvard. And he decided to do an experiment. And so he got a frog and he put the frog down and he said, jump frog. And the frog jumped. And he went ahead and wrote down in his little, little ledger, with four legs, the frog jumped six feet. Well, then he cut off one of the frog's legs. Says jump. So the frog jumped, and then he writes in his ledger, with three legs, the frog jumped five feet. Then he cut off another leg. Said jump, frog, and the frog jumped, and then he wrote in his ledger, with two legs, the frog jumped two feet. And then he cut off another leg. Said jump, frog, the frog jumped. He said, he wrote down in his ledger, with one leg, the frog just jumped one foot. Then he cut off that leg, and he said, jump, frog, and the frog doesn't move. He says, jump, frog, frog doesn't move. So he goes and he writes in his ledger, frog with no legs becomes deaf. Now, we laugh because we think, how could someone so smart make such a dumb conclusion? And yet, there's much dumber conclusions being made by very smart people. Now, why is that? It's because there is actually such a thing as evil in the world. There is such a thing as Satan and his demons. And there is such a thing as demonic and satanic deception. Let me explain something. We, last week we looked at Psalm 2. If you remember, Psalm 2 divides into these kind of like a four-act drama. starts off Act 1. The people of the world, the leaders, have corroborated together to resist God's commandments and to resist his son reigning over them. And then Act 2, God, Father, basically communicates that it's already been decided my son will reign in Jerusalem, Act 3, the Son of God comes on the scene and he begins to ask for his inheritance and the gift of all the nations under his rule. And then Act 4, King David comes on the scene and then he ushers a warning down through the corridors of time that before it's too late, honor the Son before he comes and he will bring judgment. And so with that backdrop, I want to go back to that first section of Psalm 2, and I want to read it again. We, we, we said Psalm 2, the first section, we called Satan's Agenda. It goes like this, verses 1 through 3. 
Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us, is what they say. So Satan's plan, his agenda, is to get the people of the earth to throw off all godly restraint and to resist giving their devotion and allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's his agenda, Satan's agenda. That's where he's trying to drive history. It's important for us to know why all the, all the, the pieces fit and what Satan's trying to do and where he's trying to drive history. He's after a militant, unified passionate revolt against God's laws and against God's son's right to reign on the earth. That's where Satan's trying to push things. How does he do that? Psalm 2 actually gives us insight into his strategy. First, he deceives the rulers and the leaders of every segment of society, deceives them. Then he gets them to unite together in his diabolical purposes. He teaches them to devise these clever ploys to capture public opinion and to undermine righteousness. So he provokes them to overthrow all of God's edicts, all of God's written words, and basically convinces them to have this attitude that we will decide what is right and wrong, not you. That's where Satan's trying to drive things, but ultimately to get them to say, and your son will not reign over us. My question is, this morning is, how does he get people to that point? That's why I want to take the next few weeks to talk about how does he get people to the point where they will throw off God's commands and they will resist his son? How does he get them to that point? Well, he can't do it with the truth, so he must use deception. Let me, I want to look at one of the ways that he does this this morning. Every human being who's ever lived has asked two basic questions. Who am I and why am I here? Now, if the devil is going to deceive somebody, it seems like he'd like to start by deceiving them with those two questions, those two basic questions. Question number one, who am I? The devil's answer, you're nothing. You're, you are an accident. You are the result of random evolutionary processes. Question two, why am I here? The devil's answer, you are here to consume and enjoy. That's why you're here. That's the only thing that matters. So if the devil can convince people that they are simply the result of random evolutionary processes, then there is no God and there is no reason to keep his commandments. And there's no reason to honor his son. And if the devil can convince people that the reason they are here is to consume and enjoy, then they will grow to despise and at least ignore God's commandments because they begin to see those commandments as a way of keeping them from consuming and enjoying all that they could. And this whole idea then of actually surrendering to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, that becomes repugnant to them. The whole idea becomes repugnant to them because, first of all, they don't even believe there's a God. And 
They want to consume and enjoy, not submit to, to him. So how's the devil going to uh, get people to believe those things? Well, in 1859, Charles Darwin wrote a book in which he said, and I quote, Belief in God, religion. There is no evidence that man was originally endowed with the nobling belief in the existence of an omnipotent God. I speak, he says, I speak of natural selection as an active power or deity. So the theory of evolution was born, and it began to change the way a lot of leaders. Remember, he starts by deceiving the leaders of every segment of life, universities, politicians, so forth, teachers. So the theory of evolution was born and changed the view of so many Leaders. Darwin's <clears throat> colleague, Alfred Wallace, wrote this, and I quote, Natural selection is supreme. There is a power not only adequate to direct and regulate all the forces that work in living organisms, but also the fundamental forces of the whole universe. So evolution replaces God in many of their thinking. But they continued and continues to build. Ernst Hegel, a German contemporary of Darwin, wrote this, and I quote, With this single argument of evolution, the mystery of the universe is explained. The deity annulled. And a new era of infinite knowledge is ushered in. In 1900, Frederick Nietzsche said before he died, and I quote, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, rightly said this in one of his writings, if God does not exist, then everything would be permitted. So what followed next? I just want you to see the setup that's been happening in recent history. 1933, and when you think about history, it's still recent. 1933, John Dewey, the father of the modern education system, declared these beliefs in the Humanist Manifesto. And I quote, he said, To establish such a religion as humanism is a major necessity of the present. It is a responsibility that rests on this generation. We therefore affirm the following. And then he gives the credo. Here it is. Here's the humanist manifesto. Number one, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing, not created. Number two, humanism believes that man is a part of nature, and he has emerged as a result of a continuous process of evolution. And number three, humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantee of human values. So I want you to know, I'll just summarize what he just said. He said, no creator, no creation of man, no supernatural, and no moral absolutes. That is the humanist manifesto. Now, in 1983, and that's the father of 
modern education system. That's John Dewey. 1983, John Dumphy wrote an article for the Humanist Journal in which he declares war on Christian beliefs. Here's what he writes, quote. So I am convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public schools by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity that recognizes and respects the spark of what theologians call divinity in every human being. These teachers must embody the same selfless dedication as the most rabid fundamentalist preachers, for they will be ministers of another sort, utilizing the classroom instead of the pulpit to convey humanist values in whatever subject they teach, regardless of the education level, preschool, daycare, or large state universities. Then he goes on to write this. The Bible is not merely another book, an outmoded and archaic book, or even an extremely influential book. It is and remains an incredibly dangerous book. It and the various Christian churches, which are parasitic upon the Bible, have been directly responsible for most of the wars, persecutions, and outrages which humankind has perpetrated upon itself over the last 2,000 years. So that's been Satan's strategy to eventually get this thinking into the schools, starting at the youngest age, and to teach these lies. So I want to show you how it's worked. And as a result of accepting evolution and humanism, I want to show you what happened since just 1961. In fact, from 1961 to 1982, just 21 years, every, every Supreme Court decision favored secular humanism and declared it the official religion of the American public schools. Let's see how it happened. 1961. Torcaso versus Watkins. Secular humanism was named by the Supreme Court as a religion in America, protected by the First Amendment. 1962. Engel versus Vital. Class prayers are banned from public school. 1963. Class Bible reading forbidden in the public schools. 1968. The Supreme Court ruled that evolution could be taught in public schools and no one could forbid it. 1973, Roe v. Wade. By the way, this is, this is the first great ethical implication of the, of the decision. Again, here's the process. You can't teach about God. You can't teach that man was made in the likeness of God. So therefore, before you're born, you're not human. You're just, you're just a mass of tissue. Uh, this, uh, you know, and so... That can be done away with. 1980, Stone versus Graham. Teachers, teachers had posted Ten Commandments on a bulletin board. That's all they did. They just posted them. They didn't read them out loud. They didn't teach them. They didn't tell the students they needed to follow them. All they did is post them. Well, this went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled a violation of the First Amendment and forbid the posting of the Ten Commandments on a bulletin board in the public schools. 1980. Again, remember what the Satan's trying to do, get people to throw off God's commands. 
I just want you to see the process of deception that he's using. 1982, Judge William Overton ruled that it's unconstitutional to permit the teaching of creation alongside the teaching of evolution in public schools. Now, why? Why did he rule that way in 1982? Because creation implies a creator. And it's, that means there's something supernatural, and that's all religion. You can't teach religion in school. That was the process of their thinking in this court case. Now, here's the irony of ironies. That in 1982, in William Overton's courtroom, during this case, we eventually ruled against permitting creation to be taught alongside evolution. During that court case, every day... The U.S. Marshal came in, stood and everyone stood in respect, and he said out loud, God save the United States in this honorable court. I mean, think about how insane this is. The very courtroom that ruled you could not teach creation because that would mean there's a creator. Every day they opened up by saying, help us, creator. So one great demonic deception that's really gotten so many to throw off God's commandments is acceptance of evolution is true, and we see what that did in so many cases. <clears throat> but how much truth do you have to actually end up rejecting to believe evolution? Dr. George Wald, the Nobel Prize-winning Harvard biochemist, said he's actually convinced that it's impossible for life to have been spontaneously created from non-life. He said it's impossible. But listen to the rest of his quote. He said this. That leads us only to one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. But we cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This is a Nobel Prize winning biochemist. Here's a scientist that chooses to believe the impossible. Why? Because not based on science, he doesn't choose to believe the impossible, based on a philosophy that will not accept the idea of there being a God, no matter how much evidence. This is deception. There's so much that can be said about why evolution was impossible to happen. But I just want to say a few things about it because I don't know where else we're going to all hear about it. But actually, there's two types of, of evolution. Many of you know there's microevolution, which basically talks about variation within a species. And we know that happens. There's more than 200 different vari variations of dogs, for example. We know that cows' milk production can be improved. You know, by the, by the breeding. We also know that bacteria can adapt and develop immunity to antibiotics. We know all that. The important thing, though, is that this variation is always within the same kind of animals. For instance, if you try to breed beyond these boundaries, for instance, if you have a horse breed with a donkey, you get a mule, but the mule cannot reproduce itself. The Bible says that God created plants and animals to reproduce after their own kind, and they do. So microevolution is not controversial. And that's the kind of evolution that Darwin observed, micro, within a kind. Then there's macroevolution, 
which is a theoretical transformation of one organism or species into another. That has never been observed by anyone. Darwin had a theory that without any intelligence guiding it, primitive animals have been transferred over time into more complex creatures. With no evidence. Here's a theory again, I just remind you, it states that millions of years ago, these electrical disturbances caused reactions among lifeless chemicals in some type of primitive ocean. Eventually, this caused some of the chemicals to link together and become organized into living cells all by chance. Then these organiza organizations mutated over time to develop various multi-celled plants and animals. This theory says that natural selection helped animals and plants evolve. What is that? Real briefly. Natural selection merely is merely the idea that organisms that are well-suited for their environment will flourish, and organisms that are not well-suited for their environment will disappear. So over millions of years, the theory says that various species developed with increasing complexity until human beings came on the scene from the same ancestors as the ape. In fact, there's a biology textbook that actually teaches public school children. There's a sentence in it that says, you are an animal and you share a common heritage with an earthworm. There's so much that can be said against evolution. I mean, I wrote my master's thesis on this subject and I'd love to talk for hours about it. But I just want to make one simple point, why it's impossible. When they discovered DNA, they discovered that DNA was a language. It's a chemical language based on a genetic alphabet. And it was like, it was like, it's like computer software that records the precise instructions for piecing together every part of you and me, from the 600 muscles in your body to the 2 million optic nerve fibers to your 1 billion nerve cells. There's a blueprint of information that uh, is inside every cell in your body. There's so much information. I want to give you an idea of how much information <clears throat> is in DNA. I want you to see this because this is true. All the information that is in these encyclopedias that I'm stacking up here I want you to see, would you say that's a lot of information? There is more information in the DNA, in a, every, every microscopic cell in your body, than in all these encyclopedias put together. That's how much information is in DNA. And they've discovered that, and know what they say? There's information there, and we don't know why. Where does information always comes from an informer? I want you to think about this. If, they observe, if we had one sentence from outer space, one sentence detected by some telescope, satellite, or whatever, something we actually could... Hear a sentence from outer space. Everyone will conclude there's intelligent life out there. One sentence. And we have this much information in every DNA and in every microscopic cell in your body. 
that's screaming for the fact that that much information demands there's an informer. There is, has to be a creator. And so we see all through, you know, this, this blueprint, the design, the intelligence that demands it. In fact, it's interesting, Dr. Walter Bradley and Dr. Charles Thaxton, two scientists, they said, the only rational explanation for the information in DNA is that life comes from a who and not from a what. It's also no wonder that the medical doctor and the molecular biologist and genetics researcher, Dr. Michael Denton, who wrote many books on this subject, one book, Evolution, he, he, the name of the book is Evolution, A Theory in Crises. He concludes, it's 368 pages long. He just, he just dismantles Darwinism in this book. He dismantles it totally. Here's one quote he said, ultimately, Darwinism, the theory, the theory of evolution, is no more or less than the great cosmogonic myth of the 20th century. It goes on to say, the mere idea that life could, by random processes, form from non-life is simply an affront to reason. So instead of believing there must be a God, then the evolutionists choose to believe the following. I just want you to think what they have to believe, to believe in evolution. They have to believe that nothing produces everything. They have to believe that non-life produces life. That matter plus time and chance gave rise to mind. Matter, just matter, time, chance, gave rise to mind. They have to believe that chaos produced information. They have to believe that being arose from non-being. I want you to think about this. They have to believe that person, personness arose from the impersonal. Right now, every one of you has a sense of your personness. You know you're a person. You know you have a certain identity. You have, you have consciousness and personality. The idea that that personness came from matter, time and chance. Personness? It's all demonic deception. Now, why does the devil go through all that trouble? So he, convinced, he can convince as many people as possible you're just an accident. You're just a res result of you know, the evolutionary processes. So if you weren't created by God, then you don't have to answer to God, you don't have to keep his commandments, and you sure don't have to honor his son. And that's where the devil's driving all these things. By the way, if those, first, those two lies that the devil tries to convince everybody of, the, the, question, the answer to question number one, who am I? You're just an accident, the result of evolutionary processes. Question number two, why am I here? You're just here to consume and enjoy. I tell you, you put those two things together, you get terrible results. If all I, if, if I'm just, you know, here as an accident and evolution, and I'm here to consume and enjoy, then the only thing that matters is if I'm more powerful than you, then I can take from you what I want to consume and enjoy. Isn't that what we're seeing lived out in our culture and our world? It's, it's so easy to see how abortion would come about, about because of those two lies. I mean, if you believe that, that, that in that womb is simply a lump of flesh and it's going to keep me from consuming and enjoying it in my life, then why not do away with it? Do you see the whole setup for this? Or how about if that, 
if it's determined that child's deformed in the womb, then that would even more so keep me from consuming and enjoying. So definitely do away with that one. And what about aging parents? They're old and feeble. The end is near. They not only have a right to die, they have a duty to die. And we can give them a cocktail to help them die. So we don't take care of them anymore. See, more and more, we see the results of believing this setup, these lies. Now, what is the truth? Well, God's told us the truth through Revelation. We also, a lot of this is evident by observation. But Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Psalm 8, verse 4 and 5. What is man that you, th- you take thought of him? <clears throat> or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. Who am I? The devil tries to convince us, well, you're just a result of random evolutionary processes. God's word says, I've been made in the image of God, crowned with glory and majesty. I am, you know, I am not an accident. I am made in the image of God. He knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, what does that mean? What does that truth mean? His body... Bachman said so well, he said, whether I, what that truth means is whether I'm tall and beautiful or small, not so handsome, whether my body functions perfectly or is deformed severely, I am precious to God and crowned with glory and majesty. And as a result, I have inherent, inherent dignity and inherent worth and inherent value. See, that truth means that there's no place for things like racism and classism and abortion, and euthanasia. And when you consider things like slavery, it should have never happened if people in charge were following the truth, the whole truth. But it did happen. But why did it stop? It stopped because those in charge started seeing the whole truth, following the whole truth. Who am I? I'm precious, a precious creation of God, in the image of God, crowned with glory and majesty. Why am I here? The devil tries to convince us we're here just to consume and enjoy. God's word says this, Colossians 1, 15 and 16. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, talking about Christ. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So why am I here? I've been created by Christ for Christ. I'm here to glorify Christ. Why are you here? You're not here just to consume and enjoy. You're here to glorify Christ. You exist to honor him. What's the de- so where's the devil trying to drive history? He's trying to drive history through deception to get as many people as possible through all kinds of means, evolution, and you know, it's just, it's just one, of the, one of the ways. He's trying to get as many people as possible to throw off God's commandments Say that we will decide what's right and wrong and resist his son ruling. That's where the devil's trying to take things. He's got all kinds of strategies to do it. I'm just talking about one of them today. Now, where's God taking history? God is taking history. He's going to raise up a passionate people that will love him, embrace his commandments, and long for his son to come. 
That's where God's driving history. The battle lines have been clearly drawn. The war between the two sides is going to increase in the days to come in intensity. We're going to see more and more. When you see the type of protest you're seeing on TV and the news, the type of anger, the type of two sides clashing, that is only going to intensify. The devil's raising up a passionate people against God's commandments and against his son. But God's raising up a passionate people that, that love God and love his commandments and love his son. And this is going to intensify in the days to come. Now, just as we close, I just want to say how important it is that we realize we are not sitting on the sidelines watching this battle. We are part of it. We have got to stand for the truth. We've got to uphold the truth. And I want to say particularly to those in here. I say particularly to those who are teenagers and 20-somethings and 30-somethings in a room and online. Our, our younger people, you've got to fight. You've got to fight. You've got to tell the truth, and you've got to, withstand, you've got to resist what's happening. Now, I know a lot more of our younger people in the next service, but I'll tell you, this is real important that we understand that young people have got to take a stand on this. And so many young Christians aren't even voting. I mean, I asked a lot of, you know, 20-somethings, 30-somethings about the last election, and they didn't vote. I'm saying, you didn't vote? I mean, we've got to take a stand on things. And, every, and I'm seeing the, those in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I'm seeing that generation, they're fighting, and I'm looking around for the young people. Where are they? And so I'm urging the young people that are part of Grace Community Church, I mean, you've got to fight. We've got to fight. Now, we don't fight with, with fleshly weapons. I'm not talking about violence. I'm talking about spiritual weapons. But I'm talking about standing our ground, standing for the truth, and standing up for Jesus. And that fight, will, that intensity will increase. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to scare anybody. I just want you to know the reality of what's coming. This, tense, this is going to intensify. And we've got to stand for the truth. I want us to see that the Satan is behind all these deceptions. And I want to give you some more of those in the weeks to come that we've got to stand against. We've got to stand up for the truth. Let's all stand for prayer right now. Father, right now, we do ask that you would fortify us with your word, with the truth, by the power of your spirit, that we would be a loyal people of Christ, no matter what may come, that we'd stand for truth, regardless of the consequences, that we do it all with humility and love, but we would not back off from the truth. We pray for that strength in us then, and I pray for the young people of Grace Community Church, that you raise up an army that is passionate stand and to fight and to get involved and to make their voices heard. And so, Lord, I pray for that. And I pray for not just our church, for the churches in this country and around the world, that you'd raise up a generation that will stand up for the truth and will stand up for Jesus, Lord. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.